I'm Abigail. And I'm Keith. And this is the Global Treasures Podcast. We'll cover different World Heritage Sites each episode. These sites have been identified as having outstanding universal value. Because they have cultural and or natural significance that is so exceptional that it transcends national boundaries and is of importance to present and future generations. There are 1,199 sites across the world, with more being added every single year. We'll spend each episode exploring the history, legends, travel tips, and so much more. Welcome to Season 2, where we will explore the 45 sites that UNESCO added back in 1979. In this episode, Keith and I will be introducing you to ancient Thebes with its necropolis. During its heyday, it was the most powerful and wealthiest city in the empire of Egypt. Once known as the city of Wayzat, the monuments within the ancient city of Thebes proudly stand near the banks of the Nile. It's in close proximity to the modern city of Luxor, which is about 400 miles south of Cairo, which is the current capital of Egypt. Collectively one of the greatest monuments of the ancient world, the city was built to honor the living, dead, and the divine. The ancient city with the necropolis was added to the UNESCO list of World Heritage Sites in the second class of 1979. I grew up, like many, with a healthy fascination for the history of ancient Egypt. I think that anyone who has seen pictures of the temples, the monuments, and the necropolises, or anyone who has seen the King Tut display at one point in their life, couldn't help but be fascinated by these ancient peoples and their accomplishments. The ancient city of Thebes in the necropolis is just one such site that is jam-packed with history and culture to be explored. I'm looking forward to digging into this one. Thebes, the city of the god Emon. Once a local Theban god, he was merged with the god Ray and proudly took his place atop the entire Egyptian pantheon. This city was the capital of the Egyptian empire during the Middle and New Kingdoms, and boasts breathtaking monuments and major archaeological sites. The temples and palaces at Karnak and Luxor, the necropolises of the Valley of the Kings, the Valley of the Queens, and a massive assemblage of structures, columns, and statues are testaments to Egyptian civilization at its height. The ancient city is divided into two parts by the powerful and all-important Nile River. On the east side of the river was the city proper and many important temples, including the central Karnak complex. This temple paid tribute to four different gods of the Egyptian pantheon and was one of the largest religious complexes in the world, nearly one mile by a half mile. It was considered the principal religious site of the New Kingdom of Egypt. The monuments inside the site are enormous. Inside, at Tepsut's obelisk towers stand an awe-inspiring 90 feet tall, which is impressive even by modern standards, but when considering that these stood upright 3,000 years ago, it makes one take pause to consider how could these have possibly been built without modern tools. Linked to this by a 1.9-mile-long avenue lined with sphinxes is the Luxor Temple. Dedicated to the god Iman, in his form as a fertility god, soaring columns and statues of Ramses II adorn this temple. This temple is nearly as famous as the Sphinx or the Pyramids. 
The primary structure was built during the reigns of Amenhotep III and Ramses II, near 1500 to 1200 BC. But other rulers, from the wonderfully famous King Tut to Alexander the Great, added their own touches over the years. This temple was used during the annual Opet Festival of the Royal Renewal and is still used as a place of worship. The Abu Hahegag Mosque was added in the 11th century, and prayer is still heard there today. The west side of the river is dedicated to the dead. Dating over 3,000 years ago, extensive necropolises commemorate the lives of the royal and the highborn and prepare them for the afterlife. The site is divided in two different valleys, the Valley of the Kings and the Valley of the Queens. These sites were used to bury royalty during the New Kingdom era. We will get a little into the Three Kingdoms later. Rulers were put in elaborate underground structures containing chambers and passages. These rooms were decorated with paintings and filled with treasure. This treasure was everything a pharaoh could desire in this world or the next one. This area of Thebes was made famous by the discovery of the Tomb of King Tut by Howard Carter in 1922. Amazingly, the tomb was completely undisturbed when it was found, even though many of the surrounding royal tombs were heavily looted in the 21st dynasty between 1050 and 945 BC. In the Valley of the Queens, there are 90 known tombs of queens, princes, and other royalty from the New Kingdom. Tomb robbing was common here, however, and few tombs were left undisturbed. To get an idea of how important these monuments and the city of Thebes was, it's a good idea to have at least a general idea of the history of Egypt and how this city played a pivotal and central role in that history. We'll give a little bit of that history here, but remember, we are summarizing thousands of years of important history into a short presentation. If, at the end of this, you're found wanting more, there are tens of thousands of great resources to check out if you're interested. So historians divide up the early history of Egypt into five different periods, the pre-dynastic period, the early dynastic period, the Old Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom, and the New Kingdom. Between the Old, Middle, and New Kingdoms were a time of strife and extreme difficulty for the Egyptians, known as the Intermediate Periods. The pre-dynastic period is the time before 3100 BC. There's evidence of human activity in this area of Africa since the Middle Pleistocene period, which is from 770,000 years ago to about 126,000 years ago. Between 90,000 to 10,000 years ago, there was a gradual movement of hunter-gatherers into the prehistoric Nile Valley caused by climate changes and drying lakes in the south. Traces of these early people survive in the form of tools and rock carvings on the high terraces of the Nile. As they came to the edges of the Nile Valley, there's evidence of a gradual transition to a settled lifestyle and agricultural development. During this time, there was also evidence that these peoples had relations in both trade and warfare to the peoples south, east, and northeast of the area of modern Egypt. Pit graves are common throughout the Nile Valley, and numerous goods found in these graves suggest a belief that these early peoples had in this afterlife. An even number of goods between graves 
also suggests that there was already a highly stratified society. The early dynastic period, which lasted from about 3100 BC to 2700 BC, is sometimes called the Archaic Period, and this consisted of the first and second dynasties to rule Egypt. During this time, the upper and lower kingdoms of Egypt were united. This is traditionally attributed to the power of the ruler Menes, but was most likely carried out under several different rulers. We'll make mention of dynasties as a way of measuring time in this historical account. And just in case you didn't know, a dynasty is a line of hereditary rulers. So Egypt has had quite a few throughout its history, and that will be evident to you pretty quickly during this. During this early dynastic period, important parts of pharaonic culture were established. Some of the important developments included a centralized royal administration, a written language, artistic canonization of beliefs and scripture, stone building techniques, and large-scale mud-brick constructions. An extensive cemetery at another site, Abydos, where the ancestors that first ruled Egypt were buried, continued as the site of the first royal necropolis and are also the first indications of the importance that early Egyptians placed on the afterlife. Large underground complexes of chambers not only included the deceased, but food offerings, furniture, clothing, and weapons. These sites were then covered by low mounds out in the desert. Large mud-brick constructions were added near agricultural areas that probably served as offering and funeral sites. All of these traditions that were established led to more and more complex afterlife beliefs. In the Thebes area, very little material evidence has been preserved from the first and second dynasties, except for some ceramic and stone vessels. But given how extensive other sites, like Abydos, are from the same period, it's likely that Thebes also had a large legacy from this time period, but is now sadly lost. 2700 BC gave rise to the time known as the Old Kingdom. The third to the sixth dynasties ruled during this time of great prosperity and innovation. This is when the three great pyramids and the Sphinx were built at Giza. Throughout these dynasties, burial and afterlife preparations grew more complex, and pyramid chambers that were at first undecorated were now starting to be carved with elaborate texts designed to help the king's journey to the netherworld. Historians believe that the Old Kingdom ended at the end of the Sixth Dynasty with the economic, political, and cultural collapse of the country. Most historians attribute this fall to climate change, low Nile floods, political jealousies, a decline in foreign trade, and the spectacularly long and weak rule of Pepi II. This started the first intermediate period in the year 2184 BC. This intermediate period is often oversimplified by historians in favor of spending more time on the spectacular accomplishments of the Old, Middle, and New Kingdoms. During this first period, there were dramatic changes in the administration of Egypt and power shifted to local officials. This led to a pause in the costly monument building of the earlier dynasties. During this time, Thebes emerged as a rival power to the Inesayat al-Madina, and the rulers of Thebes established the 11th dynasty. The contest between the north and south resulted in a Thebes victory and the reunification of the country that took place under Mentuoptep II. 
historians generally recognize his reign as the beginning of the Middle Kingdom in 2040 BC. The 11th through the 13th dynasties were a time when many of the Old Kingdom practices were brought back. Thebes was made the capital city of Egypt during this time, and the kings of the 11th dynasty were buried there in saf tombs, which means row in Arabic. The burials were in the northern end of the Theban necropolis. The most impressive of this time is the temple tomb of Deir at Bari, built by Menhotep II. The Middle Kingdom saw the return of tremendous power back to the kings, expanded architecture, tighter military and economic control, increased foreign trade, and considerable investment into art and architecture. Temples were established and enlarged, most notably that of Amun at Karnak. The White Chapel, the Shrine of Sunseret I at Karnak, is one outstanding example of the workmanship from the period. The Twelfth Dynasty began with Menhotep's the fourth's former vizier, Amenemetet, and thank you for your forgiveness with these names, who for unknown reasons moved the capital from Thebes to a new, and actually we don't know where yet, location south of Memphis. During this time, rulers' burials once again took the form of pyramids. This middle kingdom came to a crashing end during the 13th dynasty when, once again, Egypt's central government became fragmented and localized. The new capital was abandoned, and parts of Lower Egypt, including Thebes, fell under the control of the Hyksos. This started the Second Intermediate Period in 1782 BC. During this time, large numbers of foreigners were moving into southern Egypt and settling there, and few monuments date from this period. So, Keith just mentioned the Hyksos. And these were nomadic peoples who were seeking grazing land for sheep and goats or to seek work as laborers and servants. And they were quick to adopt Egyptian customs and regularly fused in their own cultural traditions. By the 15th dynasty, see, I told you there was a lot of dynasties, the Hyksos established their own city in the eastern delta. And as the numbers increased, they moved further and further into the country, eventually controlling Memphis and other cities in the north. Soon, upper Egyptians, whose capital was at Thebes, entered into open conflict with Hyksos and their allies. Eventually, the Theban rulers won this conflict and gained control of a unified Egypt. The Hyksos' contributions to Egypt were long-lasting, however, as they were responsible for introducing the harnessed horse and the chariot into Egypt, not to mention the composite bow, armor, the vertical loom, the lyre, and even the lute. What's a lute? Yeah, actually, that's a good question. The lute is actually something near and dear to my heart, as it was the forerunner of the modern guitar. Oh, that's a neat fact. Okay, back to our timeline. So, 1570 saw the start of the New Kingdom, which is represented by dynasties 18 to 20. This is really when prestige and prosperity of Egypt soared to new levels. Kings conducted military, diplomatic, and trade relations with Nubians far to the south as well as other Mediterranean states. Several New Kingdom rulers strengthened foreign relations by marrying daughters of other monarchs and building Egyptian temples in foreign lands. Settlers were also active in all levels of Egyptian society, from slaves to personal aides to the kings. Thus, outside influences made their way into Egyptian religion, language, and art. This prosperity provided the means to improve 
enlarge and build new state temples and cities. The site of Thebes became powerful as the principal cult center of the god Amun-Ra, and thus received a lot of incoming wealth from the empire. The stone temple building increased in scale, and kings also built a series of memorial temples for themselves along the edge of the cultivation of the West Bank. Actually, you mentioned that Egypt built temples in other lands. I remember actually surprisingly running into one in Spain um, that was from the first century BC, so that was kind of cool. Anyway, the traditional religious institutions survived a threat during the later half of the 18th dynasty when Amenhotep IV rejected Egypt's former polytheistic religion and replaced it with his own monotheistic religion focused on the god Aten. Amenhotep destroyed images of Amun throughout the country, and he moved the religious and political capital of Egypt to a new city, which he called Akhtaten. His successor, Tatankhamen, rejected these new ideas, however, and restored the old ones by starting a new temple building program. This program continued under his successors and left wonderful monuments. The capital was no longer Thebes and was moved to Memphis until Ramses II built a vast new city called Pi Ramses in the Nile Delta. Wealth continued to pour into building tombs during the New Kingdom on the western Theban bank of the Nile. The Valley of the Kings and Queens was the final resting place of New Kingdom rulers and their noble families from Dynasty 19 and on. After the 19th Dynasty, the rival Hittite Empire had collapsed and left a political void, which was filled by the powerful Assyrians. During the 20th Dynasty, the Egyptians had to fight off numerous powerful invasions from all sides, as well as facing devastating domestic issues. Insufficient Nile floods, grain price inflation, a harem conspiracy, which may have led to Ramses III's death, and strikes by tomb builders protesting arrears in food payments led to instability. Even worse for history, many tombs of the kings were robbed during this period. At this time, there was a rise in power of the high priest of Emun at Thebes, which led to the downfall of Ramses XI, the final king of the New Kingdom. This began the Third Intermediate Period. Because the robbing of royal tombs was so severe, the high priests of Emun reburied many of the royal mummies in a hidden location. Pharaohs of the 21st to the 24th dynasties were buried within the walls of the Temple of Emun at Tanis for safekeeping. Thankfully, political stability started to return during the 22nd and 23rd dynasties, and Libyan pharaohs ruled from the delta. These rulers gained back control over the high priests by placing their children into high positions in the clerical hierarchy. This rule did not last, however, and centralized authority declined further and was again split, but this time into three during this period. Pianchi, the ruler of the Nubian kingdom, took advantage of this split in Egypt and conquered Egypt during the 25th dynasty. He met very little resistance in his campaign. After this victory, he went back to his capital, but he left his sister, Amendris, as the god's wife of Aymen at Thebes. This was a position that allowed her to control Egypt in the absence of her brother. This also allowed Nubian pharaohs to maintain control over all of Egypt during this time. 
they carried out numerous important building projects throughout both Egypt and in Nubia, while adopting the customs, beliefs, religion, and politics of their own culture to these projects, and this influence continued long after the dynasty ended. They also made Amun the state god of Nubia, were buried under pyramids, and even adapted the hieroglyphic script. The Assyrians continued to fight the Nubians for control of Egypt, and eventually the Assyrians were successful. Soon after, an Egyptian, Samtik I, took control of Egypt and began the 26th dynasty. See, I told you, there's a lot of them. He had his daughter Nitocris, adopted by the Kushite god's wife of Amun, at Thebes, and this assured that she would end up the next god's wife of Amun. This position gave her significant power over re the region, as well as large lands throughout the entirety of Egypt. Samtik I also allied himself with Mantuametat, the powerful mayor of Thebes, who owned the largest and most complex private tomb in Thebes, and this effectively gave him control of the whole of Egypt. During this time, there was, again, a large migration of foreigners into Egypt. A new simplified writing form called Demotic was introduced and was used for written documents. However, this new writing was not used for monuments, architecture, and art. These continued to use the old hieroglyphic language. This had the excellent effect of the copying of many works from the Old Kingdom, which most are the only surviving copies today, and how we know so much about the Old Kingdom. Alexander the Great conquered Egypt in 332. The Egyptians willfully accepted him as pharaoh because he adopted Egyptian kingship and religion. He laid the foundations of a new city called Alexandria on the coast, which became the new capital of Egypt and is still an important city today. Upon his death, the control of Egypt fell to one of his generals, which began a line of monarchs who ruled Egypt for the next 275 years. So it's interesting because currently Arabic is the official language. But at this time in history, Greek became the official language of the government. That being said, Demotic was still used by the majority of Egyptians. Egyptian and Greek religion was mixed, and several cults were started. Many of these cults built traditional temples all over Egypt. Romans came to rule Egypt, and the Roman emperors continued this tradition, and this led to further mixing of artwork, religion, and architecture. Thebes developed further throughout Roman rule and accelerated by the development of Christianity and the conquest of the Arabs that began the Islamic period in AD 641. Several churches and monasteries were set up in the ruins of the temples at Karnak and Luxor. On the West Bank, the Coptic village of Jem was established. Monasteries were built at the site of Hathor Temple of Deir al-Madina and on the ruin, ruins of Hatshepsut's Temple at Dar al-Bari. Many of the tombs were used as monks' dwellings and chapels, including several of the dynasty 19 and 20 tombs. You can see that the history of this site is remarkable in its length, and some of those small passages we just shared with you actually covered a thousand years or more. This is the kind of human history that people get awestruck about, and I'm sure many people have Egypt, and specifically the UNESCO site of Thebes with its necropolises, on their bucket travel lists. I simply can't wait to go see this stuff. So Abigail, I know you must have tons of tips and tricks to go to Thebes 
and see the countless wonders that it possesses. So how do we get there? Any tips and tricks? Sure do. So if you're visiting from a country outside of Egypt, you can fly to Luxor International Airport. You can also fly into Cairo and take a train or bus from Cairo to Luxor. It looks like there are a couple that go back and forth daily. In terms of buying tickets to the site itself, you can find lots of guided tours in English through vetted sites, and I even saw discounted tours through membership sites like AAA. The nice thing about these tours is they often include pickup and allow you to book everything in one place. If you buy your, a ticket yourself at the site, I believe it allows you to access three of the tombs because some of them aren't actually open to the public. And then you have to pay separately for some of the sites. My understanding is that it would take a few days to see everything, so try to prioritize your must-dos. Part of the reason is because you'll need transportation to get to some of these tombs because this site is really large and spread out. Something else I thought was really fun is there are a lot of hot air balloon ride tours. That seems to be a big thing. I'm sure you get stunning photos from up there. And just a fair warning, that may seem like common sense, but if you have a fear of heights, you probably don't want to partake in this. Also, speaking of photos, know that you won't be allowed to take photos in certain areas inside the tombs because flash photos can have a detrimental effect on the paintings inside the tombs themselves. In terms of lodging, hotels in Luxor and even Cairo are pretty inexpensive, and there appears to be a wide variety of well-known hotel chains to B&Bs that won't break the bank. In terms of the best time of year to visit, I'd suggest using the weather as your guide. During the summer, it can get up to over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about 38 degrees Celsius. The weather is much less oppressive between November to February. Of course, this goes without saying, please make sure you're drinking lots of water if you go during the summer to prevent dehydration. All right, that's great stuff. But let's get into the thing that, besides the history, you know I'm truly excited about when we do eventually get to go to Egypt. What did you find out about the food? Oh, the food sounds really good. So some standout dishes include falafel with tahini and pita. And for those who have never had the true pleasure of having good falafel, it's deep-fried fava bean balls with lots of spices. There's also baba ganoush which is an eggplant dip, usually, again, served with pita. And if you like sweets, kunafa will be up your alley. And this is a cheese pastry dessert made with phyllo dough, usually soaked in a sweet syrup, and it has some sort of nut like pistachio or walnuts. I almost liken it to baklava. And there are over 100 restaurants in the Luxor area, per my research, so you won't go hungry. All right. Well, all of that sounds amazing. And I'm sure with, with a culinary history such as Egypt's, you're probably just scratching the surface. I simply cannot wait to go experience all of it. So transitioning again, I'm sure that there are thousands of paranormal stories that surround the construction of the monuments in Egypt. I happen to remember when I was a kid that there was a theory that all the pyramids and magnificent temples probably couldn't have been built with the tools back then. So, of course, it must have been aliens. So. What'd you find out? 
Yes, my friend, it is always aliens. So there are two main conspiracy theories of note for this site that I was excited to talk about. The first is centered around King Tut's death, which is very controversial, and extraterrestrial life or aliens. So many of you know the story of King Tut. We learn about it in school. He died at age 19, very young. For a time, it was believed that he passed from an unfortunate combination of a broken leg and malaria. And the broken leg, I guess, was from a carriage accident. And a broken leg now, while painful, of course, isn't usually deadly. However, back then, without the ability to safely amputate, obviously they didn't have casts or antibiotics, would cause sepsis quite quickly. So... Over the years, scans have been done on his body, which ruled that it was likely not poisoning that killed him, so that takes murder, potentially, out of the mix. However, not totally, because it appears there's a possibility that he was stabbed, or that he died from a blow to the back of the head, because specialists have found bone fragments inside his skull. Why would somebody want to murder him? Well, I just want to go back and explain very quickly. So I mentioned the bone fragment in his skull. And the reason that indicates a blow to the head is because, obviously, when you get hit in the head, a piece of your skull is going to chip off. So there are a couple potential suspects, but the most frequently suspected is Horemheb. There's evidence that this individual had the title of hereditary prince which likely meant he was the heir in the case of Tut's death to the throne. And obviously, he had a kingdom to gain if he knocked him off. This would explain why Horemheb isn't featured in Tut's tomb, which is unusual. And it could have been because officials figured out he murdered him. Unfortunately, we'll likely never know the full story. Okay, and then conspiracy theory number two. So, like you said, Scientists have long wondered how the Egyptians were able to build marvels like these without modern technology or advanced engineering degrees from MIT. Many believe it was with the assistance of aliens, who helped launch human civilization by helping the Egyptians design these monuments. Many are quick to point out that there's no evidence showing that the Egyptians used ramps or a pulley system of some sort to build. I mean, if they did, Wouldn't we have uncovered some of this equipment or even have hieroglyphics detailing the construction? They found hieroglyphics outlining how they constructed the pyramids, so I would suspect they would have documented for this site similarly. Also, how did they do this work without a crane or some device that would give you a telescope-type view from above? But you know what would give you a bird's-eye view? A spaceship. (laughs) Really? Okay. Now we're getting out there a little bit. A spaceship? Come on. How else would ancient astronauts have gotten Earth? Okay, so also notably, Dr. Viktor Ivanovich, who is a specialist in advanced propulsion systems, don't even ask me what that means, and was, I guess, a contractor with the Russian government, claims that the KGB, which was the federal state security service for the Soviet Union for quite some time, found evidence of alien visitation. He also claims they found a mummified alien corpse, which the KGB confiscated. But he doesn't know where it ended up, so 
no verifiable proof exists that this actually happened. Wow. So forgive me, but this is thick. So I'm sure that 100 documentaries have been made about this and probably plenty of books. But it all seems a bit far-fetched to me. Aliens that travel millions of light years in spaceships with advanced materials capable of bending space and time come to Earth to what? Build piles of stones? Great. What a fun story. All right. So spaceships aside, Thebes in the necropolis must have millions of visitors per year. What's the Egyptian government doing to keep it safe? There are a bunch of factors at play here. The main issues facing this site include tourism or visitor management. And this is spot on, as over 11 million visit Egypt annually, with the bulk visiting this area specifically. Risk preparedness is another factor, due to the Valley of the Kings and Queens being at risk for flooding. Local housing encroachment is another factor they need to keep an eye on, too. And this is due to population growth near the west bank of the Nile. Uh, More and more housing is being built up around the site specifically. And with habitation comes litter, foot, and car traffic that needs to be monitored. So the bright spot is that UNESCO conducts workshops for managers and practitioners who oversee conservation of these sites. And they recently did one where this site was covered. Natural decay is going to occur because it's not like you can just cover the monuments with tarps when the weather is bad. Damage is going to occur just by the nature of the age and location. They're outdoors. Ancient Thebes still retains 80% of its ancient form and materials, which is incredible, considering, again, how old the site is. So as long as they continue to monitor the issues I outlined, we'll be able to continue to enjoy this incredible place into the future. Okay, so it sounds like ancient Thebes with its necropolis is in good hands. That's actually really great to hear. All right, folks, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Global Treasures podcast. If you love us, and we're sure you do because we're so great, please click follow on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're up for it and you have a couple of minutes, leave us a written review. Those reviews help us to get more exposure and allow us to continue this project well into the future. You can also follow us on TikTok or Facebook. We'll see you next time when we visit the city of Antigua, Guatemala.